0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
0: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Mark Winfield. He's here to talk about an article he authored in The Conversation. It is entitled Canada's Federal Election Made Big Strides for Climate and the environment uh, Mark Winfield is a political scientist and professor of environmental studies at York University he's also the co-chair of the Faculty of Sustainable Energy Initiative and coordinator of the Joint Master of Environmental Studies and Juris Doctor program offered in conjunction with Osgoode Hall Law School He has published articles books chapters and reports on a wide range of environmental economic energy and climate change law And uh, policy topics, his book, Blue Green Province, the Environment and Political Economy of Ontario, was published by UBC Press in 2012. So it's a pleasure to welcome Mark to the show. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much. Well, yes, our uh, federal election, which uh, had a big question mark about whether we needed it or not, (laughs) you're saying is uh, it may have had some great changes for and strides for climate, which is, I guess, a plus because there was a big question around why was this election even held at all?
2: Well, I think that was a big question in a lot of people's minds, that this seemed to be kind of a Seinfeld election Mm.
1: uh,
2: that was was about nothing. Mm. Um, But in the article, I'm kind of arguing that it it actually sort of somewhat accidentally has turned out to mean quite a bit, especially around climate and environmental issues.
0: And if I'm not mistaken, at some point through that, that whole election, while it was very short as it was, um, the progressive conservatives made some changes around their environmental policy, didn't they?
2: They did. Although um, Mr. O'Toole had a great deal of difficulty with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was trying to drag his party forward in, in this conversation, I think was having a realization that um, the party is, is, unelectable if it didn't have some kind of credible position on climate change. And so he moved in the direction of, of recognize the reality of climate change and indeed hinted at some form of carbon pricing, even on the part of the mm-hmm. conservative party. Uh, Mr. O'Toole's problem seems to have been, though, that he, he, he may have been uh, somewhat ahead of a large portion of his own party in this mm-hmm. thinking. Um, and that has one of the number of issues on which which he's had some some post-election trouble as a result. Mm. Uh,
0: you mentioned uh, carbon pricing there, and I'm just wondering if we can step aside for a second just to talk about carbon pricing in, in general. I've read a number of articles, uh, you know, outside of uh, uh, Canada and carbon pricing seems to be a, a reasonably good way to approach this in terms of making the change happen. Is that is, would you say that's fair to say?
2: I think so. Um, there is now a pretty strong consensus or, among economists and others uh, that carbon pricing is an essential part of the mix, mm-hmm. particularly given the pace of, of change that we need to achieve that the intergovernmental right. panel on climate change is now telling us uh, where we need to get to, which is, which is effectively net zero by the middle of the century. And indeed, uh, Canada is committed to a 40 to 45% percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 um, carbon pricing is is seen very widely as an essential element, although uh, carbon pricing alone at this stage is unlikely to get us where we need to get to right. in the required timeframes.
0: Right, of course. Okay, so going back to the election and the changes that did take place in this um, a Seinfeld election, as you pointed out about why we even had it, however... Uh, the The process did bring forward some new things that are going to come out to moving forward that could help in terms of of reaching those climate goals that we're we're saying we're, we want to meet
2: yeah, you know, one of the features of this election was was the extent to which both in the the pre election period and then during the campaign um, the liberals put a surprising amount on the table around climate change i think in part motivated by the consideration that they, they have to worry about bleeding votes to the NDP, the Bloc Québécois tradition of the greens, although the greens, less of a factor this time around. Mm. Um, and so that, that sort of, they have to keep progressive voters from drifting away to those parties. And so to do that, they ended up putting quite a lot of substance on the table as we were just discussing even before the election, um, Commitments to increase the backstop federal carbon price and also increased Canada's official commitment in terms of how much it's promising to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions under the Paris Agreement. We Mm. we upgraded that commitment to the international community. And then during the campaign, um, there were some very interesting things that came out of the Liberals, and it's in their platform uh, a commitment to cap and then reduce emissions from the fossil fuel industry particularly oil and gas which is very surprising uh, indeed to move it to net zero emissions by the middle of the century and there is also a commitment to achieving a a net zero electricity sector as well by by an even shorter time frame so those things are are quite significant given that the um The oil and gas sector especially has been the biggest source of growth in greenhouse gas emissions by far over the past 25 to 30 years. Uh, So that one's that one's very surprising from a climate perspective. It makes sense, uh, but of course, does run risks of conflicts with Alberta and Saskatchewan Mm. in particular going forward.
0: Yeah. And of course, um, as and I, I didn't hear much about the, uh, you know, the Trans uh, Mountain Pipeline, what is your sense of, of what we might see around that Trans Mountain Pipeline?
2: Well, that's that's a good question. I mean, as it stands, um, the government remains committed to building it mm. um, regardless. Um, and construction is proceeding. Um, the situation, of course, just deepens the questions that have been out there already, um, for many different perspectives. Um, from from the perspective of the affected indigenous communities, as well as you know, how do you how do you square this? And you know, the, this commitment to to get to net zero emissions from the uh, oil and gas sector just deepens this question of well, mm. how can you reconcile that? Mm. Um, with building a pipeline to tidewater, one of whose purposes uh, seems to be to facilitate the expansion of the export of uh, very carbon intensive um, oil sands oil um, from Canada, basically to widen the market for oil sands oil with the implication that we would potentially increase production. And that, fundamental contradiction i think remains on the table but mm-hmm. we talk about we're going to go to net zero in oil and gas and yet we're still building infrastructure that's that's basically designed to expand uh production from the sector and i haven't really heard a reconciliation yet of how, how how do those two thoughts go together
0: right and going back to the election and the campaign uh, and i'm not sure if this is is a question that we can answer or not. But in looking at the liberals that were in power and looking at what other countries are doing and hearing about some of the other strides that they're making towards climate change, and then once you're in the midst of, say, an election campaign, is there a way to, to look at the, the, that balance or dance that has to go on in there between uh, trying to win the votes but also look at what Canada as a whole needs to do in terms of moving forward on, on the climate crisis?
2: Well, uh, that's, that's a good question. I mean, as it is, um, as I say, the government has put, you know, in many ways far more than any previous federal government has put on the table around mm. climate change in terms of actual substantive action. Mm. Um, they're in this situation where to stay as the government, in minority parliament uh, they're reliant on one of two parties, either the NDP or the Bloc Quebecois, and whatever else the Bloc talks about, it, it is. Uh, it's I think its bona fides on climate change are quite are quite legitimate. Um, you know, both parties, very strong on climate, are going to be pushing the government forward. So it's, it's, it's got much stronger compulsion than it ever did before to act. Um, it does at the same time have this question of what's going to happen in the United States, especially um, that Mr. Biden personally is very clearly engaged on climate change, but seems unlikely to be able to get any substantive legislation through the Congress and potentially even less so after the midterm elections next year. Mm. Um, So we have to be conscious about that relationship at the same time. Um, Both the European Union and the United States, uh, this was coming out of the the G7 meeting, um, have been talking about, in a more serious way than we've ever seen before, um, the notion of carbon border tariffs or or carbon tax adjustments, uh, basically that, that if countries don't have relatively robust climate change strategies, that if we're trying to export goods to, you know, and we don't have a good strategy in place that they will effectively penalize our exports of the border. Um, I mean, that does provide, again, relatively strong incentives to take action, to do the sorts of things okay. that Mr. Trudeau says he's going to do. Um, the big questions internally um, are going to be, especially around the future direction of the fossil fuel industry, and, and in particular, um, how this relationship with, Alberta and Saskatchewan is going to work, um, given their relative hostility, to put it mildly, to taking any kind of substantive action on climate change.
0: Mm. Two questions come to mind. One is, could the the government be looking at this to say, well, uh, we're going to be exporting this and helping our own people by keeping them employed? Um, is that a possibility? One and the second thing I'm wondering about is: is there a possibility that this pipeline could be somehow retrofitted or changed or or utilized for another energy, a green energy form in the in the future?
2: Um, yeah, two complicated questions there. Um, you know, in terms of of the 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 export to somewhere else, I mean, the the problem there is twofold. I mean, the, the big one, of course, is that. Um, the production of the oil, in Canada's case, from the oil sands itself is, right. is very, very energy intensive. Right. Uh, so you get a large amount of greenhouse gas emissions associated with just uh, separating the oil from the sand, literally. Yes. Uh, you basically have to steam the oil out of the sand. Right. And, and that uses up enormous amounts of energy. So you get very large greenhouse gas emissions at that stage before the oil is gone anywhere. Right and then if you're selling it to other people you're they're still burning it in yep. their cars yep. principally so you're getting greenhouse gas emissions there um with respect so so you know if you know the fundamental problem overall for Canada has been you know that expansion of oil sands production has fundamentally driven increased major increases in greenhouse gas emissions at the national level and, mm. which completely overwhelm whatever progress other people have made Ontario phasing out coal, Nova Scotia phasing out coal. Um you know whatever progress they've made is completely overwhelmed by the growth from the oil and gas sector. Mm. On the pipeline itself, um I think the basic answer is is probably no. Um, as I understand it, it's it's optimized for bitumen. Mm. Um, the only thing really from an energy perspective that could be usefully shipped through it natural gas maybe mm. there may be some technical issues there um hydrogen would be the other distinct possibility which has been getting a lot of attention from the government of alberta and the governor of canada lately but i don't think and i would defer to someone with more technical expertise but I don't think you can put hydrogen into that pipe mm. if it's made out of steel because mm. hydrogen tends to to degrade steel. Mm. Um, it's very reactive, so you, right. you couldn't do something like that, which was is be producing hydrogen in Western Canada in Alberta from mm. natural gas right. and then putting that into the pipeline and shipping it somewhere instead. So I think I think mean, this is part of the problem. Is this is a fairly single use piece of infrastructure? And it's a little hard to reconcile um, the notion that we're going to net zero uh, for fossil fuels, and yet we're building these kinds of infrastructures, which you know we've had pipelines easily last 50, 60, the one uh, that there's a big controversy about line five, yeah. um, between Michigan and Ontario. I mean, it's nearly 70 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, So once you build these things, you've got them for a long time. So way past the date at which we are saying we're going to be net zero in the oil and gas sector and indeed net zero in our overall greenhouse gas emissions by 2050.
0: Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host David Moses. My guest is Mark Winfield. He's a political scientist and professor of environmental studies at York University and uh, he's here to talk about an article he authored in The Conversation. It is entitled Canada's federal election made big strides for climate and the environment. And of course, uh, those big strides that were promised uh, still have to be uh, proven by following through on them. That's something uh, we'll talk about a little bit, but uh, Before we get there, uh, you you mentioned line five there, and I'm just wondering if you know uh, much about um, that situation. I know I saw some uh, pictures of that line five, and it's, uh, it's a really interesting um, uh, uh, a sort of, I guess, pipeline in, in the way that it is just lying on the bottom of that strait that goes across. And the whole issue with that, I guess, uh, what from right I remember it, reading about it, was that a, a ship that ran into some trouble uh, had to drop its anchor. And when it dropped the anchor, it actually caught the pipeline. And that is, I guess, one of the biggest concerns in that it is so um it, it's so shallow of of a water, and also that the fact that this pipeline is just sitting on the bottom that a ship's anchor could actually damage it and cause a, a rupture of that or, or 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 worse. um and the fact that it is, of course uh, quite quite aged at this point in time
2: yeah, it's it's got a few miles on it. Um, I mean this is part of the concern is that it's it's just it's just old. Mm. Um and it is, as you say, in this very vulnerable location. It just sits on the bottom of the Straits of Mackinac, and um, you know, an anchor or some other accident could could rupture it. Um <clears throat> so it's the downs, you know, the, the, the issue has been, well it, it is An important piece of infrastructure from the viewpoint of of supplying oil to eastern Canada. Mm -hmm. um, Although there are potential ways around it if if need be, I think. Um, And so it's become this very complicated dispute, because of course the governor of Michigan is very clear about her concerns that if there is a rupture, um, the consequences could be quite catastrophic. Um, And now there's a dispute going on, you know, that Canada has invoked a treaty that we have with the United States. Uh, that says that um neither country is supposed to interfere with pipelines and energy flows to the other um but there is on the other hand there apparently there was a clause in that treaty that says well um <clears throat> the parties can you know restrict the use of a pipeline if there is an environmental or a safety concern and and this is Precisely the argument that uh, the governor of Michigan has been making. So, where it ends up, we don't know. But again, it it does go back to these these questions of infrastructures. Now, as I understand it, Enbridge is proposing that they would replace the existing pipeline by tunneling under the straits, like actually put it into the bedrock.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but that, of course, is going to take that would be a major project, which will take several years to mm, pull off mm. um so there there's this question in the short term of well do we continue to take the risk of an accident or or a rupture um given the age of the pipeline uh you know while that happens then there's this larger set of questions about um you know do we really want to be continuing to extend the life of fossil fuel transportation mm-hmm. infrastructures which seem to kind of lock us
0: in Right. To continue to use these fuels. And that directly comes back to uh, your article, of course, and you, you address that in the article about uh, that, that commitment to end that at some point in the future. Now, uh, the line five that you're just talking about, it also carries, as I understand it, a massive amount of, of fuel for uh, Quebec and Ontario.
2: Yes, this is, um, this is one of the complications is that at the moment, it's being used as a way of, of um, flowing Western Can- Canadian oil to, um, to Ontario and Quebec. And this is then part of the reason for the, 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 the fuss, as it were, um, on the Canadian side, is that uh, we have been trying to um, reduce the dependence in Eastern Canada, which traditionally relied on imported oil and try and you know, uh, use Alberta oil instead. And so this does create an energy security problem potentially for um, Ontario and Quebec. I mean, there is uh, this is actually refined in Sarnia. Um, there is some debate about this as to whether or not there are not bypasses um, right. around uh, the south side of Lake Michigan, for example, mm. um, would be the most obvious line six, as it's known. Um, it's a bit of a roundabout route, but there's been some back and forth about, well, you know, is, it, is it worth continuing to carry this risk mm. um, given the energy security issues or is, is, are there viable workarounds? Um, principally, you'd have to go through Chicago, I think is the way it plays out in the bottom of Lake Michigan. Um, and then to Sarnia that way would be the workaround. So there's debate about this, but that has been part of the reason. This is part of the reason Canada's invoking this treaty is saying, well, this is important from an energy supply perspective. Um, but uh, say it's it's not at all a slam dunk in terms of that treaty. Um, if the arbitrators were to be persuaded that there is a genuine environmental or safety risk here, and that's not a, you know, it's not given the age of the facility alone, mm. that's, that's, that's not uh That's not inconceivable. Yeah. Um, There we are.
0: And having said that, I believe someone has mentioned to me that it supplies 100% of the fuel that goes to the Toronto International Airport. Now, the other thing is, heaven forbid if there was some kind of a catastrophe that had that pipeline shut down because of reasons that we were just talking about, what would then happen and what would be the workaround? would we would we all of a sudden be out of a massive amount of our of our fuel that allows the the provinces to function on a daily basis
2: well there are there's some debate about this I mean there are other lines mm. um principally going southward um as I say, Line Six, is it's known, there's actually a number of pipelines yep. that flow basically to Chicago, okay, and then up through Michigan to Sarnia, to basically the same place, mm. okay. and then would go on from there. So there there's some debates about capacity, mm. Uh, mm. but it's you know it is not inconceivable that workarounds could. I mean there. The pipeline network in North America is pretty extensive. Right. Um, there may be well be workarounds that, that could continue to deliver oil. And then the other possibility, of, I mean, we do import oil from the eastern side as well, mm. although it's been, uh, we've sort of been pursuing a policy of, of trying to um, use Western Canadian oil as much as possible and to, to extend its reach. And this is part of the reason we reversed something called Line 9, Uh, from sarnia to montreal was specifically for the purpose of of facilitating the flow of western canadian oil into eastern canada
0: Mm, okay Uh, getting back to your article in terms of the election and how things have shaped up that could be better for the environment one of the things you mentioned is that that the liberal party is sort of not going to going to have to deal with more progressive parties how do you interpret that
2: well i would i would interpret it as the ndp and at least so far as climate change is concerned um uh the the bloc Québécois as well mm. um mr Blanchet for for <laughs> whatever his other flaws um <laughs> you know he it's his signature on the agreement between quebec and uh, california around uh you know, linking their climate change policies and, mm. and carbon pricing systems. Um, the NDP, I think, somewhat got caught because the liberals did arrive with this very, very detailed platform, especially around climate change, and theirs by comparison. Right was relatively thin and specifically thin on details, which I thought was a very interesting criticism Mm -hmm. Uh, because usually you look to them to provide the, the sort of more substantive content um, on these kinds of things. So I think they were taken a little off guard that way. And then the situation with the greens obviously is, is um, you know uh, what can one say Mm -hmm. um, other than I think, uh, you know, very unfortunate Um, again, you know part of what the liberals were dealing with was was you know this risk again of bleeding off relatively progressive voters and voters concerned about the environment and indeed um in uh 2019 i mean the greens pulled over a million votes um so that's not a portion of electorate you can ignore mm-hmm. um with the demise of the greens i mean we don't really at this stage we don't know if the party's going to survive right. what's happened right. um that may or may not reduce pressure on the liberals to keep their their positions in in a greener direction because of course you know those green voters if you look at the way the electorate sort of divides up um the most likely second choices for those green voters is likely to be liberal or new Democrat. Mm-hmm. So those are voters, the liberals, if they want to stay in the government, uh, normally would be looking to hang on to because they would be worried if they can vote green then they're not voting liberal.
0: Mm-hmm. And, of course, with it being a minority government, uh, I've heard that that is always favorable for uh, parties working together uh, collaboratively and uh, being able to get through things that seem to be better for the country, perhaps. What is your sense of then moving forward and getting some of these things accomplished?
2: Well, this is this is an interesting moment. I mean, I mean, typically uh, minority governments have been relatively productive. I mean, a part of the frustration about the election was that that on the whole things seemed to be going reasonably well and mm-hmm. uh, there was no particular need for an election that, right. that the government was making commitments on climate generally is seen to have handled the covid situation well and
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, there are specific points of criticism especially early on that one could point to uh is that they were a bit slow in the initial response but um on the whole everyone thought things were stable i think What's happened in the sense the liberals have, have kind of maneuvered themselves into a corner where um, they're under more pressure than ever um, to make sure they deliver on what they've committed to. Uh, so one hopes one sees things moving forward. Indeed, I've argued in the article that if the liberals want sort of looking forward to whenever the next election's going to be, theoretically mm-hmm. it could be another four years, so it's a minority, so we don't know.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, if the liberals don't deliver on what they've committed to on climate um, and other things as well, childcare, um, reconciliation, mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. things, um, then they're going to have this large risk of, of bleeding uh, voters to, uh most likely the democrats in quebec you know, the situation with the bloc always complicated mm-hmm. um but especially the democrats and and if the greens somehow manage to rise from the ashes of of the situation in which they've they've now put themselves into um you know again there's, there's the, that risk could return um you know that that if the greens are pulling off a million voters um who could potentially vote liberal uh, that's something they have to worry about. So I, I would expect, barring some other huge external event, um, that that we would expect the government to carry through, and it's going to be under a lot of pressure to do that, uh, because in a minority situation, among other things, I mean, to get legislation through the House of Commons, to get budgets through, they need support of the NDP or the Bloc, most likely, but also... Um, Parliamentary committees will now have majorities of opposition members, and those can provide platforms for asking very, very good questions about, well, is the government doing what it said it would do? Uh, And it can get very public and very messy if, if that's not the case.
0: Right. Okay, Mark, we'll have to leave it there. It's been fascinating speaking with you. I thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and talk with us about your article and about this very interesting and, of course, essential topic, uh, Canada's Federal Election Made Big Strides for Climate and the Environment, which is the name of the article that Mark authored in The Conversation, and you can find out more by going to The Conversation to read that article. And uh, Mark Winfield is a political scientist and professor of environmental studies at York University. It's been a pleasure having him on the show. Don't go because we're going to be back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
3: Element. Element. Element FM.
0: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. Or you can also listen to our previously posted uh, interviews and conversations that we've had up on our SoundCloud at ELMNTFM. And uh, you're welcome to go there, link, share and uh, listen at your leisure if you happen to have missed Part of or an entire uh, interview that we've done previously here on the show. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show. I have with me Seth Wins. He is a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Geography, Planning and Environment at Concordia University. He's a social scientist trying to improve how we mitigate climate change. And his research to date has focused on education, behavioral change, And air travel. Well, it's interesting because we're here to talk to Seth about an article he authored in the conversation, which is entitled Tweets, Emails, or Handwritten Notes What Gets Politicians to Speak Up on Climate? Interesting, considering we just had an election, and it will be interesting to talk to Seth about what he found out about uh, how and what things get politicians' attentions. And I guess when it gets their attention. And what I mean by that is, how about through an election process? And while we're going through that process, what about afterwards? So, Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Uh, I did think it was really interesting that you chose this topic. I'm wondering why you thought it was important to address this or what, first of all, I guess, even got your attention around this idea of what gets a politician's attention.
3: You know, this all started with some of my earlier research where I was looking at individual actions that people can do about climate change. And often there's these recommendations from climate scientists and other experts saying Mm -hmm. you should vote, get involved politically, send a letter to your member of parliament, give them a phone call. And, you know, when we look at lifestyle actions, I can say, well, not eating meat, Um, That reduces a lot of CO2, Mm -hmm, and I can mm -hmm. measure it and say how much. But we don't really have a great idea of how different political actions rank against one another. And it's sometimes hard to make recommendations about how to do them effectively. So the idea behind this study was to dig into some details to let people know not only which political actions are more effective, but how you can go about some of those actions, like how do you actually write a letter mm. that gets through to an elected official?
0: Right. Um, yeah. So that was the motivation. Yeah. Now, scientists, of course, have been speaking up on the climate for decades. They've been telling us we've needed to make change, in, you know, trying to get people, I guess, and politicians and, and world leaders to, to look at this seriously. But for what reason do you think that scientists' voices don't seem to get through? to to the people that need to or or aren't taken serious to make change happen.
3: You know, I would look at this as being something of a tug of war. It's not just scientists out there trying to communicate their messages to mm-hmm. the public and 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 that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's other actors on the playing field sure. and those actors are tugging in opposite directions. There's mm-hmm. fossil fuel companies right. that are Producing a lot of misinformation that are giving money to elected officials, asking them
0: to sort of do the wrong thing for the climate but but ironically, but ironically, of course, for whatever reason, uh, the evidence is there, and it goes against our future. It goes against those people that are taking these monies or the campaign dollars uh, to further a misinformation. Um, because it's stealing it away from the future, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I I think that's a good way of describing it. I mean, elected officials also have different incentives. There are Mm -hmm. all of these political problems with climate change. So elected officials want to get elected in the next four years. Mm -hmm. And if they work really, really hard on climate change, uh, you know, those benefits won't be seen by the electorate by the time they get to vote next. But if elected officials instead decide to give money to build a new bridge, that bridge could be up for the next election and people can look at it and say, oh, look, look at that, right? So, you know, incentives don't work out well on that front either. There's a lot of complications here that make climate change such a difficult problem to address.
0: So what you just said there is interesting because what it really pits us up against is short term versus long term. And the short-term goals that can be seen and people can uh, take advantage of, like you said, much like a bridge or whatever it might be, to help person get to work easier or you know shorten their trip or whatever it might be. Uh, it's those short-term gains that have more weight than the long-term goals of of, of having the planet live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which really needs to be a priority, Yeah, right? Like right. We do want a planet that we
3: can live on right. uh, 20, 50, 100 years from now. So we need to find ways to motivate politicians to look beyond that
0: two-year incentive mm-hmm. to the longer term. All right. So does that help us sort of uh, segue into your article around What tweets and emails or handwritten notes and those kind of things, uh, because what you did, you did an experiment or there was an experiment done to see uh, specifically by asking uh, politicians, by tweeting them to say to repost this or something like that, right?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. So you can go and ask politicians. Um, you know, hey, if someone writes you a letter about climate change, are you going to read it? Are you going to do more about it? And, and we did that. But you know, maybe there's an incentive there to say, of course, we read everything. And mm. of course, we respond to everything mm. our uh, constituents tell us. But we wanted to pair that with an experiment where we had constituents contact their MP and say, can you please post a tweet about climate change? And because Twitter is public, We can then follow that up and look at the Twitter accounts and say, well, did you actually do it? And that shows us, one, are they actually reading these emails? Because we can see, is the text the same as the text that was suggested by the constituents? And two, are they being influenced by what those letters
0: um, or emails are saying? Mm -hmm. And so what did you find? Because you you did find some interesting things when you, you went through this experiment.
3: Yeah. So we found that only one member of parliament actually posted the exact text that was suggested by the campaign. Mm -hmm. So that's not a whole lot. It it does say that there's a small success rate that you can be at least a little bit influential on some MPs. Mm. And then we also did a little bit of kind of fancy mathematics and maybe an MP didn't like the text that we suggested and they used their own pro climate messaging right. and so we found some evidence that maybe people who received these emails MPs who received emails were posting a bit more pro climate tweets than those who didn't and and so you know there's there's a, a little bit of an effect there it's not super strong but you know these emails, something to note about them was that they're those generic kind of campaign emails. Perhaps you've um, mm-hmm. had the opportunity on the internet to see something like, mm-hmm. click here to send a message to your elected yep. official, mm-hmm. and all of the text is prepared for you already. Mm-hmm. That's what these were like. Right. And so we followed the, the experiment up with interviews of staffers who are like the gatekeepers to MP offices. They decide what gets through to the MP or not, and said... Well, we sent campaign emails Would other forms of contact have been more persuasive Mm -hmm. because you could have sent a letter or a phone call. Mm -hmm. And the overall result there was these staffers tended to say, yeah, uh, high effort forms of communication are going to be more persuasive than low effort ones like those generic emails.
0: So a high effort uh, communication such as a personal letter that is written that describes you, yourself, your family, how you are affected by whatever it is that you are, are addressing the issue on, uh, those kind of things. Yeah, that, that's a really good example. So a handwritten letter is probably more
3: persuasive than an email, but at least an email with some personalization. Is better than a generic email, and and phone calls as well would be kind of
0: high up on that hierarchy, right? Because it's a it's
3: a real interaction,
0: All right? Seth, I'm wondering if you got any uh, feedback in terms of the numbers that were generated from this, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, you mentioned these campaign uh, letters, you know, click here and and you know you can send we'll send this in, it's already prepared for you, because what I was thinking of is it's not necessarily how many how many of those get read because the message is the same and once someone opens it, they'd see that it's the same thing. But the point is how many are received, right? Because that would be the point in terms of what is being made, I guess, from the people that are generating that to make a point to their politician that there's a lot of people that are on board with this or a lot of people that are addressing this issue. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So
3: our experiment itself was fairly small. It was 392 campaign emails and they were spread out a bunch, um, amongst a bunch of different members of parliament. Yeah. So some MPs would have received 10 emails, some received one, some two, many zero. Yeah. Um, and that volume matters. As you said, yeah. you know, we had staffers who who described how different levels of contact dictate how they respond to them. Like I I have some quotes to just really quickly read off. Mm. One staffer said, definitely, if we receive more than two calls in a day about a topic, we would be letting him, the MP, know. Mm. That's pretty unusual for us Mm. to receive more than two calls in a day. Mm. There isn't actually a codified threshold, but we typically get little tricklings in of like five correspondents. As soon as we start to see we'll get 30 now on this one, then we know that something is up. Mm. And so, yeah, the volume matters. And so if I was a citizen thinking about how do I make sure that my letter has an impact, one way is to work with organizations who time their campaigns at the same time. Another way might be to have a letter writing party where you get some friends and neighbors to all send messages at the same time. And another is just to make sure that you're following kind of the news cycle. And so if there's a big protest that just happened in your city, or if you know, there's an international climate negotiation coming up, then timing your message with that might mean that it has a better chance of getting through to an MP.
0: Mm. I'm glad you brought up the timing because that was something I was going to ask you about. For instance, when we're in the mid- middle of a campaign for an election, politicians are very busy with their own campaign, with the what they're trying to do. They have to travel. They have to get out. They have to talk in public. They have all these things going on. Is it is it? better to try and arrange these things during something like that or pre or post?
3: You know what? We didn't collect a lot of good evidence on that. I think Mm. it's a really good and important question that deserves more attention. Mm. And I could see it playing out a few different ways. One would expect that members of parliament are going to be more receptive when an election is coming. And, you know, there's some Political science on that question about um, MPs sort of mm-hmm. voting more in line with their constituents' preferences right before an election comes, mm. um, and and so you might want to act on that. On the other hand, there's also the chance if you're in a competitive riding that you spend all of this time trying to persuade the current MP of their stance on an issue, and then they don't get elected three weeks later, mm-hmm. and so um you know you might want to take that into account as well mm-hmm. for that reason i kind of think that your efforts might be more well suited if a, if you're in the middle of election season um to trying to get a, a climate champion or a preferred candidate elected and then send those contacts right after the election when mm-hmm. someone is settling into their responsibility and charting the path for the future
0: right now the other thing about your article uh, you talk about this and i guess even the image that you're showing with your article uh, addressing the title the title again tweets emails or handwritten notes what gets politicians to speak up on climate and immediately behind that you, you also have uh, all these people at a rally and it's the rallies that you also address and say that uh, the, uh, uh, the Fridays for Future, most of the people attending those are teenagers, uh, perhaps too young to vote. But it's their way of, of getting out and getting this attention drawn, much like those, uh, I guess, those generic campaign emails that, that are being sent to, you know, click here and send it in. It's about the numbers. Um, so, uh, again, influencing uh, and timing uh, sound like they're both really important in terms of, of when and, and how uh, we can get the politicians we want attention and addressing these things.
3: Yeah, I think I think that you're spot on there. I think that as well, if you're a large enough protest, you can create the attention, right? So mm-hmm. you don't need to wait for an event in the news. If you have enough people gathered together, that becomes... A newsworthy event in itself mm-hmm. and definitely one of the things that can determine whether a protest is effective is does it make the news because right. that's probably how an elected official is going to find out about it um, you know unless it's outside of their window or interrupting their commute in, in which case it might be really big um, another thing that can kind of enhance the um the power Of those protests is are they mentioned in the newspaper on the local news on national news and and so on so that the people in power hear about it and know that there's appetite for change and so i think a lot of organizations know this and they really work to try and make their protests um creative and interesting and likely to generate news attention and, and that's a good tactic
0: Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Seth Wins, and he is a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Geography, Planning and Environment at Concordia University. He's a social scientist trying to improve how we mitigate climate change. And it's a pleasure to have him on the show. We're talking about his article that he authored in The Conversation. It is entitled, Tweets, Emails or Handwritten Notes, What Gets Politicians to Speak Up on Climate? Now, again, going back to your article and the image there with, with the, the, uh, the crowd of people at, at uh, a, uh, a protest of some kind, thus far, you say in your, your, your article that, you know, this, this kind, these kind of campaigns haven't had much effect. But as I said, it was interrupted because of COVID. Uh, I'm happy to see that, that it hasn't waned and it is starting to come back. So obviously the youth are not going to be giving up on this. That's where I'm, I guess I'm going. And what do you think about that?
3: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think overall we do have evidence that protests work and we a lot of evidence that they work and even evidence that they work to reduce emissions in terms of climate change. So other studies have found that when there are more environmental NGOs and more protests organized outside of power plants, that those power plants reduce their emissions. Mm. And that's because there's pressure on the utility companies to either shut down really polluting plants Mm. or to clean them up and so we can expect that as fridays for future and other organizations the sunrise movement and so on push for more climate action that things should get accomplished there and you know there are anecdotes of different politicians saying how Such and such protests, environmental climate protests spurred them into action. And, you know, it's hard to know what actually goes on in their mind there. But it does seem like these are having an effect and there's reason for the people who participate in them to keep going.
0: Mm hmm. You have an interesting graph in your article as well about uh, the the number of of percentage of pro climate tweets by uh, different politicians. Uh, were you surprised by the number and and what you saw of people that did or didn't address this or or tweet on behalf of the environment? Yeah. So I would preface this by saying that when we're looking at MPs
3: tweeting about the environment or about climate in particular, the reason that this is important is because research has shown that the public responds to how elites like Mm -hmm. political leaders talk about different issues, especially climate change. Mm -hmm. And so it would be helpful for more climate action if you had a sort of feedback loop where politicians talk a lot about climate change and then voters become more aware of it Mm -hmm. and Raise their levels of concern and then hopefully hold the politicians to greater account. Mm. And so that's kind of the importance behind that figure that we included and why it's worth studying. Mm. And, you know, we looked at a relatively short period yep. for this study because it was just before and after the experiment. But we saw a little bit of what you would expect to see. So For instance, the Green Party leader at that time, Elizabeth May, tweeted a lot about climate change. The Minister for Climate Change and the Environment, Catherine McKenna, also was tweeting a lot about climate change. And we saw conservative politicians, um, with the exception of Michael Chong, who ran for leadership of the conservative party on a um, platform that included carbon pricing. So he was a little bit of an outlier Mm -hmm. in the party. Um, Otherwise, conservatives tend not to talk about climate change very much. And that's maybe a little to be expected when you look at polling about climate change and you ask everyday voters about who they trust more on the issue of climate change Then, conservative politicians tend to receive less trust. Mm -hmm. So political scientists describe them as um, not owning an issue, whereas the Liberal Party Mm -hmm. "Quote unquote," owns that issue of mm. climate change. Mm. So, conservatives might not want to bring much attention to an issue that they don't do that well in. Right. Um, so, yeah, you
0: know, there are there are patterns there that you can look at that are um, that help you make sense of that data. Right. The other thing that came to mind as I was reading this, and you were talking about the staffers receiving these emails or the information that comes that makes their way to the MP through that uh, that process. I was wondering about the, the separation of work versus a personal mindset because w- climate is one of those things that crosses over from our personal life into our professional life, uh, no matter who we are. And so uh, people would automatically, staffers uh, helping out MPs, would already be aware, would already know about some of these things, would already have uh, perhaps, uh, you know, and would have their own views on these things. I guess what I'm wondering about is is how much of that, and I'm not sure if you addressed this in in this uh, the short survey that you did about the mindset and how that affects what gets through to an MP from receiving some things like this as well. Yeah, you
3: know that's an interesting question. We didn't look at it. I can say that
0: in some ways there
3: are processes laid down in these offices where doesn't really matter too much Mm. uh, what Mm. the staffer might believe. Mm. So for instance, some parties just track volume of contact on different issues. They track contact that's pro and against phone calls, Mm -hmm. emails, and it's just tallies that are sent off to the party office and Mm. the headquarters will look at it and say, okay, you know, to this week we got whatever it may be, 300 emails in favor of climate change and 25 emails in favor of pipelines. And so we're going to design our policies with that feedback in mind, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are different ways in which just the role of that job kind of determines that the messages from constituents, so everyday people, are translated pretty faithfully but Mm -hmm. you're right there might be cases where someone just subconsciously even says wow like i i saw that article in the news about climate change Mm -hmm. and someone on the street talked to me about it and then i received two emails and two emails isn't more than any other day but because of that other stuff that's going on in my personal life I think it's time to mention it to the MP. Mm. You know that that's plausible. Um, you know we'd have to dig a little bit deeper, and, right. and sometimes you wouldn't be able to prove it either, right?
0: Right. Yes. True enough. So uh, as you look at the the data that you collected, and also in, in in thinking around the use of social media or the way to contact politicians, what was your takeaway from this, and and thinking of moving forward and how to to get people to influence their MPs and their politicians uh, around uh, climate? and getting action taken? Yeah,
3: you know, if I had to sum things up, I would say if you want to influence your MP to do more on climate, I would reach out to them with high effort forms of contact. So phone calls, handwritten letters, be personal about how you've experienced climate change. So, you know, a lot of people out West will have experienced wildfires. Out Mm -hmm. East, it might've been flooding. Um, And Whatever your concerns might be, share them, your worries for the future, for your children. All of that sort of thing is taken pretty seriously by elected officials. Mm -hmm. And I would also just encourage people to join an organization so that they know when important votes are going on or when other issues are happening so they can be connected and to get other people involved with them. So don't just attend a climate protest, but bring a friend. Don't just contact an elected official. But talk to your neighbor about sending a letter at the exact same time. Mm.
0: I, I thought also it was very interesting how you described that these, uh, the staffers said that it takes more effort to open up a handwritten letter because it's a letter that is delivered. And you have to open that letter up rather than just a click on an email, which is, is something you can look at it and, and then quickly move on to, to the next one.
3: Yeah, you're right. And that speaks to the mechanism of you know, just their role in that job, how s- strange kind of like mundane things that you might think would not matter, end mm-hmm. up mattering. Yeah. Right. And so if they have to go and type up a personalized response to your email, then it's more on their mind. They're having to commit more attention to climate change and so on. than if they just control the copy paste the same generic response to 20 different people who all had the same generic email coming into them.
0: Mm-hmm. The other thing I thought about is with that handwritten letter, if you were to send in images, if there were images that you could back up or, or augment what it is you're, you're talking about to help emphasize the point that you're making to the politician on, on the topic that you're also addressing to them
3: yeah you know we don't have evidence about whether that works better or worse but i think it's a pretty intelligent hunch right that Mm. humans respond well to images and so if you're trying to persuade people it would be a good idea even you know you could have a newspaper clipping of a recent protest or a wildfire or something that lets the mp know oh yeah this is recent it is in the news it is a big problem mm. and this is what the constituents are seeing and caring about. So yeah. I think that's a great idea.
0: Mm. Uh, Seth, moving forward uh, from this article and uh, you know, in the work that you do, uh, what is there anything that you've got coming up or that you're inter- that you're working on that, that might be of interest to people that are interested in, in mitigating climate change?
3: Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm hoping to do a little bit more research about how people can judge elected officials Mm. based on what they say about climate change Mm. or their party and so on in order to make good decisions. So, for instance, in the recent Canadian election, it was maybe fairly tricky for voters to look at all of the different climate platforms and assess the policies. And so how do you make those decisions wisely so that you're electing people that will actually act on climate change how can you tell when a politician is being sincere or not and so on
0: wow (laughs) that sounds like a tough one (laughs) to actually know if they're going to be sincere and actually act on it which was i would hope that they would act on it if they're saying they're going to right yeah yeah you would hope so but you know (laughs) it could be that
3: what party they're in is a Mm. better indicator of what they'll do than what they say right so those are the kinds of things that you know social scientists want to know more about. And right. you might not be able to nail the prediction for every single mm. politician, but if you look at hundreds of politicians, then you can find trends that hopefully can become good advice for voters. Right.
0: Seth, it's been fascinating speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about your article entitled Tweets, Emails, or Handwritten Notes at What Gets Politicians to Speak Up on Climate. And people can find that by going to theconversation.ca and they can read all about that. And it's been a pleasure talking to you about it. Thanks so much for having me on the show. You bet. You take care. All right. right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Seth Wins. He is a pre-doctoral fellow at the Department of Geography, Planning and Environment at Concordia University. And uh, he also is a social scientist trying to improve how we mitigate climate change. And his research to date has focused on education, behavioral change and air travel. That's our show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. We'll see you again tomorrow. (laughs)